So the readings from uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 14. It's God's final word, his son. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things in his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits, and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same. And your years will never end. To which the angels, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Amen. Well, thanks very much, Caleb. I'll keep that uh, passage open if you, if you would. I wonder if you've um, ever had that experience of going for a swim in the sea and you've left your stuff on the, on the beach, uh, your flip-flops, your towel, or maybe you've left it with somebody and um, off you go for a swim, um, you're getting carried away and after a while you sort of look back at the, the beach uh, expecting to see your person there, you've left behind uh, your things, and they're not there. And, and then as you look, you realize they're right way back there. And you haven't realized that you've actually been drifting. The current has taken you along the beach. But one of the greatest challenges for those of us who are Christians here this morning is drift. It's rare, I think, that someone who is a Christian will one day suddenly decide that they no longer believe there is a God, that Jesus is not the Son of God. They no longer need forgiveness for their sins. More common is that over a period of time, someone will gradually lose their enthusiasm for Jesus. Maybe their commitment to to praying, to reading the Bible. Maybe they become a bit more interested in the things of the world and coming to church and meeting with God's people. 
And over a period of time, gradually they lose their relationship with Jesus. And so in chapter 2 of this letter to the Hebrews, if you look down in verse 1, it says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Because just as that is an issue for us today, so it was for the Christians in the first century. Now, we're not sure exactly who wrote this letter. Um, there are various suggestions, such as Paul or, or Barnabas or, or, or others. But it seems safe to assume from the number of Old Testament quotations and summaries of Old Testament material that the people who have been written to are a group of uh, Christians with a Jewish background, and an extensive knowledge of the Old Testament. And they're dangerous, not just that they drift away, but they drift back to Judaism. At the end of the letter, the writer sends greetings um, from those from Italy. So uh, presumably um, there are people who have moved from Italy to where he is now, and therefore he's writing, presumably to a group of churches in maybe near Rome, in Italy. Uh, so it's probably written in the mid-60s um, of the first century uh, where uh, Christians were having a hard time, but before the extreme persecution of the church in the time of the emperor Nero. So how does the writer encourage them to stand firm in their faith and not to drift? Well, he does it in a positive way and he does it in a negative way. Positively, he does that through presenting them with the person and the work of Jesus Christ through the promises of God, including that of eternal rest, through the encouragement of meeting together as Christians, an example of some of the great heroes of the faith. Negatively, he does it through warning about the consequences of disobedience and the reality of judgment. And again, it's the same for us today. We, we need positive encouragement, and we also need to be reminded of the danger of disobedience and drifting. The greatest antidote there to, to spiritual lethargy or disobedience is the voice of God and the person of Jesus Christ, which is where the letter starts. There's no nice greetings here, no small talk. Uh, he goes straight in with Jesus Christ. So what do we read in the opening verses? Let's have a look. The first thing that we're reminded of is that God speaks. He communicates with his people. He's a relational God, and relationships are dependent on communication. Where relationships break down, it is often because couples are no longer communicating. God is not a, a distant, aloof, silent God. He's an approachable, compassionate God. He is a father. And he wants us to know him, he wants us to, to love him and obey him. Now we may get frustrated at times that we, we don't hear him speaking clearly to us in a way that we would like. But this passage makes clear that he does speak and he has spoken in many different ways. Verse 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God 
has made himself known in a general way through his creation. And therefore, as it says in Romans, we are without excuse. But that may be sufficient for knowing that there is a God, but who is this God? How can we know him? That is why God first sent the prophets and then the Son. He's revealed himself in a progressive way, not all in one go. He does it in two stages corresponding to the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we've seen in our previous series in the book of Genesis that um, God made promises to Abraham that revealed something of himself. The promises of blessing, of, of land, of covenant, of mercy, of sacrifice. But we that's why those promises were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why in chapter 11 of Hebrews later on, the writer says about the men and women of the Old Testament, he says, these were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. In that first stage of revelation, God spoke in a number of different ways. He, he spoke to Moses through a burning bush and in storm and thunder on Mount Sinai. He spoke to Elijah in a whisper. But his most common way was to speak through his human messengers, the prophets. They were the ones he commissioned to tell people about his acts of mercy and judgment. But if we read through the Bible, we will come across many different types of writing, won't we? Um, the narrative of Genesis that we've been looking at, different from the law of Leviticus, the poetry of the Psalms, the wisdom of Proverbs, the story of suffering of, of Job. And even within the prophets, um, the different stories and writers can have a different impact on us. Ezekiel is very different from Jonah, who is different from Micah or Malachi. Some of these we find easier to understand than others. God didn't finish speaking until Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he finished saying what he needed to say. As it says in 2 Corinthians, all his promises are yes in Christ. There's a progressive revelation up to Christ, but there's no progression beyond him. It is complete. And so when he says in these last days, he doesn't mean recently but in the period of time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ which begs the question what did Jesus communicate then what was this final revelation that he brought why was it better than everything God had said before well it's partly because of who he is he's not just another human prophet he's the son of God which we'll come on to in a minute. But what about his message? Well, at the beginning of Mark's gospel, when Jesus started his ministry, he said this. He said, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news is the gospel. That's what people need to hear. Don't know if you watched the, um, the the royal wedding recently between uh, Harry and, and Meghan. Um, I was listening to the Jeremy Vine show on the radio the day afterwards, and um, he said that William and Kate's wedding. Uh, the main topic of conversation after that was Pippa Middleton's bottom. This time it was the sermon, so I guess that's um, progress. Um, 
It's great that it's it's encouraged discussion amongst those who wouldn't normally set foot inside a church. And on the whole, it was received very positively because he spoke from his heart with passion and enthusiasm. He spoke about Jesus and God and love. There was also a lot of debate amongst Christians on social media about did he actually communicate the gospel? Um, And what is the gospel anyway? Well, the gospel is the good news that we as created beings can enjoy a relationship with our creator God. And the only way that is possible is by believing that Jesus died for us to save us from our sins. What prompted that was the love of God, that he wants to have a relationship with us. But if we just talk about the love of God as an abstract sort of quality, without explaining how God showed his love, then it's not really the gospel, is it? As we read in the letter to the Romans, um, which summarizes the, the gospel in one verse, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if God has spoken through his son, have you heard him speak to you? Have you heard the gospel? Have you believed the gospel? And if you have, if you do believe it, does it still fill you with great joy and excitement? Or have you become just satisfied with what you know and don't really feel you need to know any more? A bit like learning a language. You, you feel you've learned enough now to get by when you could be getting to know people from a different country in a far deeper way. We should never be able to say we have exhausted God's word. Having given us life through his word, it should be continuing to shape and guide us and make us more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Not only has God then spoken through his son, but God has revealed his glory through his son. In just two and a half verses, we are given seven amazing facts about Jesus. Have a look down at um, your Bibles, but it will come on the screen. Um, It's about Jesus and his greatness, which show why he is the fulfillment of God's revelation. And the first of those is that God appointed him heir of all things. In Psalm 2, we read similar words. It says there, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You may recall the devil trying to tempt Jesus by offering everything he could see. But of course, it wasn't really his to give. It belongs to Jesus. It will all belong to Jesus. And what that means for us is that if all things will belong to Jesus, when he makes a promise, he is able to keep it. Because all things are under his control. When he says nothing in all creation will separate us from the, for the love of God in Christ Jesus, we can trust that that is true because there is nothing in all creation that doesn't belong to him. The writer is focusing on the future here. But then he goes back to the past. And he describes the son as the one through whom also God made the universe. So he's creator. He's the father's agent in the creation. 
We, we read about that in the beginning of John's Gospel, where it says, through him, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. It was through Jesus that God brought the whole universe of space and time into being. Why does the writer mention this? Because it backs up what he's just said about Jesus being an heir. How can we trust the statement that Jesus is an heir? Because if the Son made the universe, then he must have existed before he came to earth. And secondly, he must have already owned the universe he created with his Father. So if he made the universe then, why was he appointed heir? Why doesn't he own it now? Well, in one sense, he does. After all, he sustains it. But in another sense, control has been relinquished to the the devil following the fall. And it was through the death and resurrection of Jesus that Jesus defeated the devil. He defeated sin. So now he's waiting for the time when in verse 13 it says, all his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. At the end of time... Everything will be subjected to him. The decisive battle has already been won at the cross. We're in the last days. We know we will win the war because Jesus has won the battle. Well, thirdly, we're told, again, some amazing words which Jeff read out um, when he prayed, that Jesus is a radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. But what does that mean exactly? Well, God's glory is his greatness. Uh, It's all that makes him God. His godness, if you like. So for the sun to be the radiance of God's glory is to say that he's shining forth his glory. And the reason he can do that is because he is God. He shares the glory of God. Helpful analogy might be the rays of the sun that radiate light and heat. These rays are not separate from the sun. They are part of the sun. They tell us about the sun. Christ is, he has been and always will be coexistent with the Father. And in case we have any doubt about that divine nature, the writer reinforces it by saying he's the exact representation of his being. Just as we see the sun by seeing the rays of the sun, we see, when we see Jesus, we see the Father. As Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. As human beings, we are made in the image of God, but we're not an exact representation. We are more like a blurred image, which has been made even more blurred by the fall. He also sustains all things by his powerful word. God called the universe into being by his word. He said, let there be light. And there was. And it's by that same powerful word that he sustains the universe. Think of all the powerful uh, words that Jesus uttered when he was on this earth. He said to the wind and waves, be still. And they were. He said to a dead girl, get up. And she did. He said to the demons, get out. And they did. He said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And they were. 
As it says in Colossians, in him all things hold together. He's in control of every star and planet in the universe, and there are billions of those. He's in control of every cell in your body, all 724 trillion of them. We can worry about the state of our planet, about the state of our country, about the state of our mind and body. But Jesus sustains all things, and that should give us great reassurance. But then we come on to a bit of a shift from who Jesus is in terms of his divine being and his relation to the universe to his relationship with humankind and the work he came to do on earth. And in short, he came to deal with sin. What are these sins? Well, the reason people don't understand the gospel is they don't understand sin. Sin is not just all those little things that we do that are wrong, which we wish we didn't. Sin is an attitude of the heart towards God. Turn with me briefly to chapter 3 over the page. And have a look at verse um, 7 to 11 here. This describes the story of the people of Israel who failed to enter the promised land. Why Why did God not let them in? Basically because they didn't trust him. Right at the end of that passage of verse 19, it says, So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And the writer uses that story to warn the Christians to whom he's writing. He says in verse 12, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Sin is an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. It's a rejection of God. It's that which causes our relationship with God to be broken. And to be purified is not to have every trace of sin eradicated from our lives. That will happen one day when we're in heaven. But now it is to be considered pure in the sight of God through Jesus taking the penalty that we deserve. And one of the key themes of the book of Hebrews is Jesus as high priest interceding between us and God, the one who made that one perfect final sacrifice to take away all of our sin. And the amazing thing about that little phrase there is that purification for sin has been provided. It's been provided for us as a gift Now, we live in a society where people are constantly playing the blame game, shifting the guilt, defending themselves. But the gospel is saying, I admit I'm guilty. But I give thanks that God has provided purification for sin. Sixthly, king. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. It's not that he's literally sitting on a throne. It's an expression to show that he shares the throne with his father. He reigns over the universe. He is king. Jesus has always been a king. He gave up his throne in heaven to come down to earth for a while. But because of his death, 
God raised him to life, exalted him again as king. Jesus' victory over sin and death has been demonstrated in his crowning as king. And to sustain the universe, to reign over the universe as king, are similar concepts that express the power, the majesty of God. Nothing can happen without his allowing it. And verse 8 reassures us that he will reign forever. And finally, he is superior to the angels. This is quite an interesting one, isn't it? Because the writer doesn't just leave it there. He, he goes on for the rest of the chapter into chapter 2 with a further explanation of why Jesus is superior to the angels. But let's start just by understanding who are the angels? What do they do? Well, first of all, they are messengers. They brought some of the most important messages um, from God that we read about in the Bible. It was an angel who appeared to, to Lot to tell him to get out of Sodom. It was an angel who appeared to Moses from the burning bush. It was an angel who told Mary she would give birth to the Son of God. He told Joseph what was going to happen. So they are one of the means by which God speaks. But secondly, we're told in verse 14, they are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Or in verse 7, they are servants. This makes clear that there is a, a spiritual realm which we cannot see, but which is real. And the angels are active in that realm. They are protecting God's people from spiritual attack. And the point the writer makes is that however important a role they play, they are still inferior to Jesus. In what way? Well, firstly in verse 5, because um, Jesus has a unique relationship with the Father. No one else is called his son. Secondly, angels are called to worship Jesus, verse 6, to give him the praise that he deserves because he is God. And that nature as God is made very clear in verse um, verse 8, where we are told that God says about his son, God speaking to his son says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. And in verse 10, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. So God the Father is addressing Jesus as God. They are both God. Angels may have a privileged role, but they are not God. They are called to worship Jesus. And one of the main ways in which they do that is by serving us so that we hold fast to Christ as our Savior. They were created to ensure our everlasting joy and God's glory. So as we come to towards the end, I want to leave you a couple of questions. The first of those is, who do you say Jesus is? Some religions will accept that Jesus was an important person. Muslims will say, well, he was a prophet of God. Jehovah's Witnesses will say, well, he is a God, but he's not God. Others, like Jews, will say he was an imposter. He wasn't the Messiah they've been waiting for. 
Many atheists will accept that he existed, but he was just maybe just a good, a good teacher. Others who say they believe in God will just dismiss him as unimportant. But the question that Jesus asked his disciples was a crucial one. He said to them, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The reason God sent Jesus as the Messiah, the promised king, was to ensure our salvation. He was the one who provided purification for sin. No other human being could have done that. Unless they were also fully God. Because their sacrifice would not have been perfect. And so how you answer that question is crucial to your salvation. If you do accept that he is the son of God, if you accepted his gift of salvation, then how are you going to develop your relationship with him? Later on in Hebrews, there will be some exhortations to to encourage one another, to, to lay aside sin. But the writer starts with what is the most important, and that is to focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because the key to not drifting in our faith is to grow in our faith. Going back to that swimming analogy from the beginning, if we tread water and there's a strong current taking us away, we will drift. And there is a strong current living in this world. If we tread water, we will drift. We need to grow. We need to go forwards. And, And the way we do that is by knowing Jesus better. By treating Jesus as the most precious thing we can have, the most precious person we can know. If we are feeling spiritually lethargic, a bit low, it's not that we need something more than Jesus. It's that we need more of Jesus. Jesus is heir of all things. He's creator of the universe. He's sustainer of all things. The one who's provided purification from sins, who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven and who is superior to the angels. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the heir of all things, the sustainer of all things. We thank you that all things are in his hands and we can trust him. We can trust him with our lives. Thank you that he came to do the most important thing that we need. He came to make purification for sin. And thank you that as a result of that, we can know you. We can have a relationship with you and we praise you for that. Father, if we don't yet know you, then reveal yourself to us, we pray. And Lord, if we do know you, help us not to Just be simply happy with where we are. But help us to know you more. Help us to know Jesus Christ more. Help us to go deeper into your word. Thank you that you have spoken through your word. Thank you that you have revealed your glory through your son. Lord, may we know more of your glory. And may that glory be revealed in us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.